You're now listening to Dirty Feet, a brand new podcast on No More Radio. Bonjour, oui, vous êtes sur les ondes des pieds sales, aka Dirty Feet podcast on No More Radio. I'm Alison Burns. I'm JD Papillon. Oh, I'm Jen Don. The donor. donor. I'm the donor. This is Joanie on No More Radio. Stay tuned for dance, circus, burlesque, tango, movements, salsa, whatever it is, we're going to move you. What are we now? Podcast hosts? We are a podcast, yeah. We're podcast podcasters. 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 I like that. Podcaster. Cool. For dance. <laughs> How about that? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm so excited about our interview today. <laughs> And you should be too, but we're going to keep you waiting. Uh, we've got some business to take care of before we get to our interview with Doria Nuskin Oder. Uh, and before we get there, we, we just want to talk about a few things happening in Montreal in the dance scene. JD's been going on about this show that's going to be presented at La Chapelle this week, and uh, I can't wait to see it after all he's had to say about it. So by the time you guys are listening to our show, the piece will already have started at La Chapelle. It's from February 12th to the 16th. The show is called Still Stunning You, and it is by the company Campo. Uh, the dancers slash choreographers are Peter Amp and Guillerme Garrido. It's a piece that was presented at the FTA in 2011. It's something that I went to see then, and I'm so excited to go see again. I'll be reviewing for Bloody Underrated. It's, in my opinion, the most fantastic exploration of male relationships you can get. It's two guys who decided to create works about around their relationship. And, you know, like friends, enemies, lovers, like what exactly is a relationship? And how can you express uh, male affection even with all the taboos about males expressing their emotions. And it's a really powerful work. I strongly suggest you guys go see it. I'm always inspired to say, still standing you, but there's no question mark at the end of the title. So it's still standing you. I feel that it's something that can be interpreted in many different ways. You can read it in many, from many different perspectives. Well, I guess I'll have to see the show to be able to, uh, to argue or agree with you on that point. So check it out at La Chapelle. And uh, coming soon also is a presentation by Dance Dance, who is nice enough to send us music for that show. So we're, we'll be playing a bit of their music. Um, the piece is called Car de Walk by Carte Blanche, which is a national contemporary dance company of Norway. And that will be on February 28th and March 1st and 2nd at the Théâtre Maisonneuve. So here's some of the music from that piece. I love Dance Dance programming. It's very usually very physical, very technical work, and that's very exciting. So we're going to play right now. We're going to play one piece. Then we're going to go to our interview, and then we're going to play you another piece a little later on. This is Light Bulb Overkill by Tuxedo Moon. Thank you. 
We don't often reference this, but Jen, JD, and I got started doing this podcast uh, when we were doing the CKUT show Movement Museum on the 90.3 FM. And we had such a good time talking to artists and seeing shows and just discussing dance and the creative process that we moved on and started this wonderful project, Dirty Feet. Uh, and Joanie Ferrand joined our team, and uh, here we are today. But the reason I'm bringing it up now is because we've had some repeat guests on Movement Museum, uh, some people that we really enjoyed talking to that we couldn't wait to get back again. And very fortunately, we have one of those guests in for the first time on Dirty Feet. Uh, this is Dorian Nuskin Oder, who we talked to twice when we were doing Movement Museum, once for her presentation of Everything Was Beautiful and Nothing Hurt at Tangent. We recorded that episode back in February of 2012. And then a second time we had her back in that summer in June for Piss in the Pool because she presented a work that year. And we have her a third time, but for Dirty Feet listeners, for the very first time, we have Dorian Nuskanoder. If you don't know who she is, she is a very exciting choreographer. She got her career off the ground in New York. That's where she finished her training and started her professional career. And then she started working in Montreal, and now she actually lives here. And she's our own Montreal artist, and we're very lucky to have her. And thank you so much for joining us today, Dorian. It's really a pleasure to be here. Wonderful. So let's talk about that early training that you did in New York, because it's very evident when we see you perform that you have some amazing training behind you. Um, I'll pass that along to my teachers, <laughs> that compliment. But um, I did an undergraduate degree at, at NYU to School for the Arts, which has a, a very strong sort of ballet and modern dance training component to it, um, which is typical kind of of New York schools. And then I actually did a year at the Cunningham Studios, which was definitely sort of a boot camp training in, in how to stand on your legs and jump a lot, which um, even though it's far in my past now, I think still resides somewhere in my, in my body, that kind of training. And did your career progress from interpreter to choreographer, or was it in, in tandem with each other? When did you start creating work? Um, they've definitely always been in, in tandem with each other. I was lucky enough when I was, I guess, a junior in high school, I went to the American Dance Festival Summer School, where most of the students are more sort of university age. So I was one of the young people there. And I took a composition class with Linda Tarnay, who is actually a composition teacher and was the chair of the department at NYU. And she really sparked an interest in creation for me. So straight off the bat, when I went to university, my interests were both interpretation and, and creation. And uh, one nice aspect of the NYU program is that there's a lot of space for student creation. There's, I think, three or four opportunities throughout the year to have a piece produced on stage with full lighting design, which I think is pretty rare at the undergraduate level to have so much opportunity to make work. So the two were really parallel. Uh, when I graduated, I continued making small pieces at the same time as I was, I was beginning to work as an interpreter. And throughout my career, it sort of has remained parallel. I've done both. What sparked a relationship between you and Montreal? I came here in 2006 to do the Springboard Dance Montreal workshop, uh, which was really just luck. Someone in New York had recommended it as, a, as an interesting opportunity. And really from there, I just fell in love with the city. It was really, it wasn't even a specific 
professional opportunity. I was interested in the dance scene here, but it was really first just a love of Montreal as a city, as a city that's green and has an international feel and is full of energy, but also has a, a room for space and quiet that I wasn't finding in New York. I think the very first thing I did was climb up the mountain <laughs> the second day I was here. And having sort of a, a forest like that in the middle of the city was really appealing to me. So I fell in love with the city first, and then I, I kept coming back to do workshops. And the more I learned about the dance scene here in the community, the more excited I was. I always say I saw an episode of Piss in the Pool mm. and thought that that was just super cool that those kinds of um, events were happening. And I really loved all the work I saw that year at Piss in the Pool. And so I was excited to become a part of a community that was making that work. Uh, yeah. Can you draw broad comparisons and contrasts between the New York dance scene and the and the Montreal dance scene for us? Sure. I mean, they're, they're very different cities with very different cultures, and I think already there you have a big difference. I mean, uh, specifically with the dance scene, I mean, the dance scene here is younger, which I think is kind of cool because what's, what's funny is what's happening in New York right now is you have these, these huge figures, Paul Taylor, Merce Cunningham, Trisha Brown... And they're ceasing to make work now, but they have these companies that are these huge institutions that have really dominated the training scene, um, set precedents for aesthetic, and have sort of deeply influenced the generation of choreographers underneath them. And you can really trace a lot of the time the development of choreographers, you can trace the generations through these family trees. I mean, it happens naturally through dance because we train and and That's we learn from masters. Along. Yeah. yeah, but here, just because it's a little bit younger and you have slightly fewer generations, I feel like there's still there's still a sense of of a voice finding itself, and there's still some unexpected twists and turns in what's going on here. I don't know. There doesn't feel like there's quite so much the weight of history that there is in New York, and and the scene in New York is also just just so huge with the commercial dance layered on top of the. The modern dance which still really has a presence and then more contemporary practice and here it's just a little bit more compact the scene which I like I feel like you can get a, a sense of of what's going on here in a little bit more easily how do you feel that Montreal artists how do you think that they could approach the New York scene if they were trying to go present works in New York do you feel that there are spaces which are more open to what the Montreal scene is about That, that could welcome them? For sure. It's funny. I have this conversation all the time of the question why even the big companies don't go to New York. Like Marie Chouinard doesn't go to New York. And um, I don't quite have an answer, but I think for, for younger choreographers, there, there are certainly spaces that I think would be interested and open to the work. I personally am really curious about Invisible Dog, which is a fairly new space. But um, I don't know if you guys know Tufik. He's a visual artist and also a performance artist here, based here in Montreal. Yeah, he was giving a workshop last, or he was performing. He at performed at 303 last something. week. Yeah, and I know he's he's um, shown some visual art at Invisible Dog, but they also do present performance. I haven't made it out there yet, but their performance program looks really interesting and adventurous in the kind of work they're presenting. The Chocolate Factory, which is located in Long Island City. I don't know how much international work they present, but I think that their aesthetic aligns with what Montreal is doing. 
I'd have to mention Karen Bernard just because she has a really long relationship of bringing Quebec artists to New York through the Performance Mix Festival. I know this spring she's bringing Mayday. Um, oh. Mayday is uh, Melanie Demers' company. Yes. Right. Former Overtigo dancer, amazing woman. Yeah. So New York is lucky to have her going going down mm -hmm. for the Performance Mix Festival. I know people are starting to go to APAP. I know Virginie Prunel did APAP this year. That was with Norris, right? That she got the, por the opportunity. I to imagine, go, I probably. Uh, that's a lot of it. I mean, I could go on and on and on. But <laughs> no, but it's nice to hear that there are spaces where... Because when I think of the New York scene, when I think of like many of the New York artists I've seen here, there seems to be a big gap in the types of works that are represented there, what's welcome here, stuff like that. I actually remember talking with Brian Brooks, who's a New York-based artist, telling me how different the reaction to his work was in New York and in Montreal, and how, to some extent, he was much more welcome in Montreal because of the type of works he presents. And it's interesting to see that the gap is not so much something we can't step over at all, that it's just so big that you know it can't be crossed. No, and I feel like something that I would really love to do when I have the time and resources is help people to to start bridging that gap because I think it's silly. New York and Montreal are so close and I feel like there is a lot of information that could be shared and work that could be shared and it's unfortunate that it doesn't happen as often as I think it should. I fantasize about curating a performance here with artists from New York, bringing them up and you know, finding some sort of exchange to bring some Montreal artists to New York as well. Because I think there is a rich a possibility for, for dialogue and exchange. And there's really interesting work happening in New York, but I think sometimes it can be hard if you're just going to visit to access it. Because honestly, a lot of it's happening in Brooklyn. And the first time you go to New York, you may just hit the sort of the big venues in Manhattan and miss a lot of the interesting stuff that's going on. All the venues I mentioned before are, are in Brooklyn, with the exception of Performance Mix. To return back to uh, to your personal career, yeah. you founded in 2009 Delicate Beast, which is your choreography platform. Is that yeah. right? Great. And what's the history of that company? You formed it with a uh, visual artist and sound designer. Yes, yes. Simon Crenipoirier. Yeah, I mean, I met Simon almost as soon as I, I arrived in 2009. And um, our collaboration developed really organically over the course of about a year. But I think I had always, without really realizing it, been in desperate need of a sound designer who was really implicated in the work. It's really important to me that um, that sound work is a really integral part of the creation. It, it always drove me nuts to just have to go searching for tracks of music to paste on top of my dances. But I never really had the resources or I never found the right person. So when I found Simo, that was really exciting, just something I'd been needing for my creative process. And the fact that he's a visual artist too has really pushed the the aesthetic precision of the work. I think my compositional training had really been focused on movement invention, compositional craft, and less on sort of visual dramaturgy, developing a really clear aesthetic image that's cohesive in, in costume and lighting and decor and all of those things. So having him and his eye and his point of view has helped me to just tighten my sort of my full aesthetic vision as a choreographer 
one of the main things that comes up when I discuss your work with people is the cinematographic quality of it. I guess it's probably something you've heard before. Yeah, the I think it's definitely been a. I mean, it's I, it's a it's a word I use to frame my work as well. Okay. So. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that for your creations, especially, that's the kind of word that people are going to feel comfortable using? That you feel comfortable using yourself? And do you feel that there's something that's just intrinsically cinematographic, or is it just a really easy catch-all to represent your approach to lighting, sound? Visuals. I mean, I think it's both. I think for me, the using cinema as a reference comes from two places. The first is that when I brought a collaborator into my process, I brought in a collaborator who didn't have a dance background and didn't have the same assumptions or, or history with dance that I did. And so we needed to find a way to talk really specifically about what we were doing, but I couldn't just speak about it in dance terms. So film became a really easy way for us to start to define an aesthetic and a world for a piece. If we could watch the films of a certain director and say, okay, we're really interested in the way Alain René is fracturing narrative and and the way the you know, the way the scenes are set up, the angles he chooses, it becomes sort of an aesthetic reference point that we can both look at that's outside of our practices in order to be clear. So from the start, every piece we've made has had films that we used as reference points that have inevitably marked the aesthetic decisions we make. Mm-hmm. So then that becomes a really easy, yeah, like everything was beautiful with um, David, David Lynch. David Lynch, yeah. I feel also that uh, the notion of perspectives, using mm-hmm. different perspectives, comes back in your work quite a bit. Like, is that something that you're conscious about when you create something? I, I almost get a Rashomon I uh, feel like uh, mm-hmm. Kurosawa, where the same story is told from different viewpoints. Mm-hmm. Is this something that you ever consider when you create something? Absolutely. I mean, especially with Everything Was Beautiful, that was mm-hmm. the one of the driving interests in the work. I'm kind of interested by narrative and the troublesome relationship that narrative has with dance. <laughs> I think the, the lack of, um, not lack of specificity, there the is inherent of- sort of abstraction that comes when you work with movement as a medium and how that rubs up against uh, narrative is interesting. I was going to say something along the lines of the suspension of disbelief or the audience coming in to fill in the gaps that you create, that you allow a, a space that's open, but it's not so open that it could be anything. It's, it's guiding and open. So yeah. Too. And the suspension of disbelief thing is interesting, too, because I think a lot about... Um, theater magic and what we can do with lighting where without ever asking anyone to pretend that what they're looking at is anything other than a dancer on a stage in a black space, our minds do this thing where suddenly we connect it to all these stories and all these other images and experiences we've had. And this is where I talk about sort of tapping into this this collective store of like cinematic images that we all carry around because we all watch a lot of films and a lot of TV. And I think that there's something that can be tapped into to create an image on stage that's more than what's just on stage. And mm-hmm. I, I'm fascinated by that little bit of magic that can happen. And do you ever fear that you'll become a slave to the narrative aspect of your work? I've been very careful to define how I'm using narrative in each project. I think the reality is I have a really narrative mind, so I'm just a slave to narrative interpretation because it's how my mind works. 
but trying to be conscious of that and using it in in different ways so that I'm not assuming anything about the way that I'm making the work. The new project I'm working on is is making sort of a very conscious effort to try to step away from holding on to any one narrative in the work. I'm sort of trying to explode the narrative idea a little bit and work towards something that's maybe a bit more abstract and a bit more open. So something I'm constantly working on, working with. And that's a project that you're working on to present soon? I'm presenting an excerpt at Tangente in May, but it's very much going to be a a first exploration of, of something that's going to be a longer research. I think the piece will be a full evening in May 2014. So I still have a, over a year of, of time to work on this project. But I'll be showing a first a first draft of maybe 15 minutes at Tangente. Tell us more. How many people? Where's the, the theme? What's going on? It's a solo um, at Tangente. I'll be the one performing. I haven't decided yet if ultimately I'll be the one who performs the work, but it'll be me at Tangente. Because it's a solo and because I'm in it, I've really been interested in sort of diving into the, a more performative and physical research than maybe what I had been doing recently. Really interested in, in honing a sense of, of presence and really exploring how performer intention can shape the audience's perspective on actions on stage in a really simple way, just the reality is that when you do an action, depending on the, the intention that you infuse it with, it can read very, very differently, even with abstract movement. So I've been really spending a lot of time in the studio just exploring different ways to inhabit movement situations. Are you working on your own on a project like that? I have spent quite a bit of time alone in, in the studio, but I am I'm starting to bring in other people in the fall, I was working a little bit with um, Neil Sochaski, who's been my rehearsal director slash outside eye on other projects in the past, including Everything Was Beautiful. Soon I'll be bringing in a dancer, Lauren Semeschuk, to be both inside and outside the process. I'm going to be teaching her some movement. We're going to be having a conversation about the research. And I mean, Simon is always kind of in and out looking at stuff and, and talking to me about it. And uh, with Everything Was Beautiful and Nothing Hurt, you're going to get to tour that piece a bit. So it's going to Quebec City, Halifax. And is it going to be shown in Montreal at all also? No, no, I would have liked to. But no, it's uh, <laughs> it's just going to be in Halifax and Quebec City. It was what, a 20 minutes piece about? 30. 30. So it's, it's a piece that's complete. You know, you could probably try to present it at a worldwide level. Is, is it something that you're trying to bring outside of Canada also? I would love to. If anybody wants to call and <laughs> offer me a tour, I would totally do it. It's a funny thing. It, this early in my, in my career, remounting the piece has been an amazing experience. We actually started this week with some preliminary rehearsals because we're replacing a dancer. And remounting it has been an amazing experience. And I I had kind of wanted to expand it because I think there was room in the research to, to, to flesh out the piece and make it a full evening. But at the same time, I have this very strong urge to start something new and keep moving forward. So I am always open and exploring and I send out applications, but I also am trying to push my focus more towards the next project as well. And who's going to be dancing at this time? 
You said that you're training. I'm replacing a dancer, yeah. Uh, Rosemarie Terriot moved to Calgary, and so I am replacing her with Lawrence Mestchuk, who's a, a fabulous dancer who has worked with Jose Navas for years. And I think that she needs to be seen in other contexts in Montreal because she's amazing. So it'll be you, Ashley Watkin, and Lauren. Yes. Okay. Speaking of uh, international opportunities, you, you did spend some time in England showing work, is that right? I did. I went to Nottingham in September. I had the opportunity to take a piece to Nottingham, England. We presented No Light Thing, which is a 10-minute duet. I originally showed it Danse Bissonnière. That opportunity came about thanks to the SIAC, which is the Centre International d'Art Contemporain de Montréal, uh, which is the organization here that presents, they present a biennale here in Montreal, a visual art. And they nominated me to represent Canada as a group of, a delegation of artists under 30 who were presenting at the World Event Young Artists Festival, which was a part of the 2012 Cultural Olympiad <laughs> in Great Britain and will actually become an ongoing thing. They're going to do one in Brazil for the next Olympics as well. And so there were 700 of us. They housed us on a university campus in Nottingham at Nottingham Trent University and put on this massive festival of innumerable performances, music performances, visual art exhibitions, outdoor performance installations, I mean, anything you can imagine, gastronomy events. All in Robin Hood's uh, home base. Yes, exactly. So that was, it was a kind of a crazy experience, but very interesting and a neat opportunity. First time I had taken my work abroad, so... How was this uh, meeting with other artists? Did you feel like at all uh, inspired or did you meet people that you'd like to collaborate with in the future? I mean, it was it was definitely interesting to be in a place with a really large amount of diversity. I mean, we were living next door to a bunch of traditional Lebanese musicians who played traditional Lebanese music and they would practice all day long in their, in their room so we would hear it. And um, it was certainly really fascinating to talk to people who have a completely different relationship to their artistic practice, who come from very different places in the world. At the same time, I think in a situation like that, it would be hard for me to locate a collaborator because it's just there was so much going on. The conversations aren't necessarily super deep. There's just not time. So no, I wouldn't say that I lucked into meeting someone who I would necessarily collaborate with in the future. I definitely met people who I'm keeping in touch with as friends, and I definitely saw things that, that piqued my interest, but the reality of a festival of that size is you just kind of get a, a gloss surface sense of, of what other people are doing. And did they have any like either workshops or training activities or anything like that to further yourself as an artist during the festival? They did have workshops. I didn't go to any of them. I think because it's different when for the for like the visual artists, their art was installed before they got there. We had to mount a show, so we had rehearsal times. We had tech rehearsal. I was running around, sort of putting out fires, figuring out the PAL NTSC thing because I had video going on. Um, so I didn't really get to enjoy the festival until after our performance was over, which was halfway through <laughs> the festival. So I think I had a little bit less time than necessarily other people might have. I did see a lot of shows. Too busy stealing Too from busy. the rich and uh, giving to the poor. Yeah. Artistic rich? 
Oh, I just watched Robin Hood. That's why I'm like, I'm, I'm freaking out about this Nottingham thing. It's oh, we did go to Shorewood Forest. <laughs> it was amazing. It was so beautiful. It was a really strange wood that's not like the woods here. So it was cool. How how is it different? The trees are different. They ha- they have these these. I guess they're oak trees, but they're these weird gnarled oak trees, like the the really famous one. I can't remember what it's called now. But the oak tree where where Robin Hood supposedly would meet his men, it's still there. Or they've picked a really old tree and decided it's that tree. But and with like moss and I don't know, it looks like a story. It looks like the storybook forests. It really does. That's where those images came from. Is the woods of Great Britain. Speaking of images, see how I'm doing a tie-in here. Uh, because you have such strong images with your end, uh, your end results, your end works are such. St- visual images which we've we've discussed already but do you start knowing what that looks like or is that something that builds and evolves over time do you start with a different target and how does that work i always start with sort of a fantasy of what the image is going to be and then that inevitably transforms for both practical and artistic reasons but yes i do i always start with sort of these fantastical images of my in my mind that that get me excited about about making something new like an unrealistic you don't think okay she's going to wear sequins and there's going to be this but you think of more i mean for like for everything was beautiful i knew that shiny i wanted things that reflected light i thought about sequins but i couldn't imagine how i would tastefully incorporate sequins into the work we had talked about twinkling led lights that were going to be hung from the ceiling i mean totally unrealistic fantasies at this point in my career but from there it distills and it refines and it transforms and i spend a lot of time online looking for things costume pieces or 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 materials that i could actually realistically use if the listening audience hasn't guessed by now i'm a huge fan of your work (laughs) and that's one way that i would describe uh, everything was beautiful and nothing hurt as i was like she managed to make fireworks happen on stage. She, you know, it's simply but but extravagantly. It was uh, it was pretty incredible. One thing that I found interesting, actually, like for me, many elements of uh, everything was beautiful and nothing hurt stick to, uh, stuck out. But strange enough, how much you left the space to the other dancers and didn't put yourself out there as much. I found that a really interesting quality to the work I found because there was, there was almost this sort of directorial aspect to it. That that's how I perceived it, of you being there but letting them do their craft and you sort of pulling the strings like a puppet master in a way. Was this voluntary? Did, did you sort of move away from the work a bit so as to leave more space for your dancers? How did that relationship evolve during the creation Well, I think it was both a decision and not a decision. It's really hard to make group work that you're in. I think it's something that a lot of choreographers struggle with different ways to to solve the problem of how to be both inside and outside of something. Um, I mean, I certainly, the interpreters I choose to work with, I choose to work with because I think that there's something that they really have to offer to a process. And they're my peers, so I think naturally they take their own space within the work and there's room for that to happen. On a practical level, I think in order to direct, there has to be an aspect of backing up from the work and looking at it from the outside. And so the reality became that the two of them sort of had a relationship and my relationship was more as observer. 
I was also interested in sort of that sort of triangular relationship where there's always one person who's kind of outside of what's going on as a framing device. And so I think that that worked its way into the work. It was funny because as we were remounting, I did actually take the time to wonder and ask my dancers, is this piece of duet, do I even need to be in it? Can we just re-choreograph it and choreograph me out completely? Um, because I was questioning this sort of removed relationship I'd created for myself. And we talked about it, and ultimately we decided that, no, actually, that's really important, that other presence that balances sort of their their relationship, which is much more clearly defined. I think it, it's important artistic. It was both an artistic and a practical choice to build the piece that way. There was also another element which was really powerful was the recurring use of the musical theme. Uh, it's in Sensitez, I think, and I don't remember the original version. It's Chopin, is it? Well, it's actually, it's funny because the, the piece is a bossa nova standard that was written by Antonio Carlos Chobim. I really hope I said that right. And um, it's based on the chord, the chord structure of a Chopin prelude. Mm -hmm. And you guys used pretty much both versions, if I remember yeah. correctly, and that... And actually, what I mentioned earlier about the perspectives, I think a lot of that feeling for me came from the different use of the same chord structure and how that would change our relationship to what was happening on stage just because of the music and how it would bring us back to an earlier part of the, the, mm -hmm. the piece of the work. How did you guys come about choosing that, choosing this these different interpretations of a somewhat similar musical theme? Well, it's funny because the choreography is also structured that way. There's one phrase of movement. There's one bank of movement that we made, and everything that happens in the piece is just a version of that sequence of movements. So really the music is kind of echoing a structure that was already present in the dancing before the music even entered into the process. And that comes from, I think, uh, just on a larger philosophical basis, both Simon and I are kind of, of minimalists in the sense that we try to work with the minimal amount of source material necessary to say what we need to say. Like there's really, we try to trim as much fat as possible and as many decisions that are sort of not directly tied to the needs of the piece as possible, just trim all the fat. I mean, it's we do it with the costumes, we do it with the decor, and we do it with the with the choreography and with the sound. So we sort of made a decision, okay, we only really need this one. This one track has so many different versions and that already echoes a structure that's in the choreography, so that's all we really needed. The choice of that particular track was a bit of an aleatory decision, a chance decision. Um, one version of that track is in a David Lynch film, and I just kind of latched onto the, to the track. Simo had it in his iTunes, by chance and I had been using that in rehearsal and then from there he just said well this is a bossa nova standard we went on YouTube and, and there's a million different versions and that's when we discovered the Chopin connection we didn't even know there was a Chopin connection it does infuse the work with a very cohesive quality feel I, I'm, I'm wondering like do, do you think that the David Lynch and the Lynch aspect of the work would have you, you would have able, been able to go get it as much with a different musical choice? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's funny because the Lynch connection, the, the decision to, to, to start thinking about Lynch came from the track of music. 
because I was already using that, that track of music in rehearsal. And Simon said, well, if you're going to use that track of music, we should watch Lost Highway. And then in watching Lost Highway, I realized, oh, well, this kind of thematically really links to what I was already trying to do anyway. So it's hard to say. I mean, it's a bit of a chicken and an egg thing because the the, the two decisions were so linked and came about sort of by chance in the beginning with the selection of the track. So I don't know. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, it was the choice of music that drove the connection to David Lynch. So probably if we hadn't chosen that music, we wouldn't have even ever made the connection with Lynch to start with. And do you have a director that is on your wish list of creating a work around, like some someone that you're like, that would be such a perfect, you know, inspiration for, for a dance piece to create? I think my selection of directors is a bit more mercenary than that. I think I, I have an idea of the kind of material I want to work with, and then I go looking, I cherry-pick directors who I think, oh, I think this aesthetic could teach me something that could be useful. So, for instance, with the next work, I had a very clear idea of what I wanted to do, and then in thinking about what I wanted to do, I said, oh, you know what, I really want to watch 2001 A Space Odyssey because there's something in those really long shots and the really crisp, clean look of this sci-fi world that Kubrick created and the way he's using these classical music tracks. I was like, I think I can learn something from that. It's not necessarily that I, that I think, oh, I love Kubrick. I want to I make a piece inspired by Kubrick. It's that I think Stanley Kubrick was doing something there that I want to learn about. And it's not even necessarily important that anyone know that that's what I'm doing when they see the final work. But for me, it's a really rich conversation and source of inspiration. So just going back to what you were saying about trim, trimming the fat and going for a more minimalist look, in, in your project that you presented at Business Pool this summer, I feel that a lot of the work was about removing the body and removing the dancer from the performance to some extent. It was very much based on the use of lighting and what you chose to reveal about the body and what you chose to keep hidden. Is this something that, that you feel could be a direction that you're going into of, of not showing everything about the body, of, of removing some from the audience's perspective? Yes. I mean, yes and no. I, it's, it's, a, it's a direction that I find really interesting. It's kind of ironic that now the very first thing I started working on now, the, the new pieces puts the body kind of front and center in a lot of ways. It's almost a complete 180-degree um, reversal of the work I was doing in Dark Sea. But at the same time, I, I, I see the finished product as a diptych, and so an interest in both sort of an extreme emphasis on the presence of the body and then an exploration of absence of presence, of darkness, of shadow, of the sort of dark side of, of the moon. So I'm, I'm interested in the two faces and I'm interested in the dichotomy of those two, those two ways of performing. But I think that there's something, I mean, I'm not, as a person, I'm not, I'm not a particularly aggressive presence on stage. And so I feel like just inevitably the work has a, has a distance or a, a quietness to the performing quality too that feeds into the work. But I, I like the way you put that actually. Thank you for No problem. That description of the work. <laughs> Now, you're busy enough already, that's for sure. But are you doing any interpretation in the near future for other choreographers? Or are you concentrating on your own work at this point? Well, I have an ongoing 
project with actually a theater company called Joe Jack Ejan. The director's name is Catherine Bourgeois. And we have a show, Just Fake It, that we've been working on now for about three years. We, the process lasted about a year and a half, and then now we've been performing it for about a year. So I'm actually leaving for Belgium on Wednesday. We're going to perform in a festival there, and we have some dates in Montreal in the spring as well. So I kind of I get a little bit of an interpretive fix from doing that show, though that project is now coming to an end. I'm open to continuing to work as an interpreter, but it's really a question of finding the right project projects. Yeah. And I think it's tricky when you're creating. I get I get picky about what kind of information I want to put into my brain and body. But I think it's I think it's it's an interesting other thing to do. So let's talk about when we can see your work. When okay. everybody can see your work. If you're in Montreal, we can see your your solo that you're working on right now, Pale Water, première partie, at Tangente in May, May 10th, 11th, and 12th. The 10th and the 11th, it's at 7.30, and the 12th, it's at 4 at Studio Hydro-Québec du Monument National, where yeah. Tangente's doing most of its season. How do you like that space? I love it. It's a really interesting space. It's a really interesting space, yeah. Are you getting quite a bit of time in it, or not so much? No, I mean it's 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 sad because the reality of it being a rental house for Tangent means that there's there's pretty strict regulations about how long we can spend in the space. I think I'll end up having maybe four or five hours of tech in the space. Do you feel that if you had more time in space, a spacious space as idiosyncratic as that one, that your ideas could go in a totally different direction in your time, during your time in that space? Or do you feel that you're pretty much set in what you want to create and no matter the space, it's going to turn out the way you were planning? Well, actually, this new piece is designed to be uh, really flexible. We're, we're making our own lighting instruments from fluorescent lights. So the idea is that the piece kind of packs into one road case and can be done in any dark space, not necessarily just a theater. So it's really designed to be something that adapts to the environment it's presented in. And this being the first time we're doing it, I, and it being still a work in progress, I know that we'll make decisions in the space based on the space, uh, especially in terms of, of lighting and, and how, we're, how we're designing the space. Okay, and then this opportunity to tour your, your work is part of the 3x3x3 collaboration that Tangente is doing. Yes. And, and that one takes you to Halifax and Quebec, where you're going to be presenting Everything Was Beautiful and Nothing Hurt. So you lucky ducks in Halifax and Quebec, don't miss this. In Halifax, you'll be there from April 25th to the 27th, and it's going to be presented by Live Arts Halifax. And then in Quebec City, May 1st to 4th, presented by La Rotonde. Here we go. Thank you so much for coming in and talking with us, and I hope it's not the last time. Oh, me other. I always have fun. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Dirty Feet is recorded every week at the Montreal Improv Theatre. Check them out at montrealimprov.com. Dirty Feet is produced and hosted by... Alison Burns. J.D. Papillon. Jen Doan. Joanie Farrand. And distributed by No More Radio. You can find more about our show at nomoradio.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Dirty Dirty Feet. And you can find us on Facebook at Dirty Feet Podcast. Tune in next week for a whole new show. This is La Boite à Joujou by Claude Debussy. Music or Call the Walk 
by carte blanche. <laughs> 